couldn't get that stupid curtain open. Somebody get rid of that thing. <laughs> Look like I'm back there dancing or something. <laughs> Good morning. We're going to start a new series. We're going to look at Ezra. We're going to look at the book of Ezra, but we're we're really dealing more with the life and work of Ezra. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah were written as one book originally, and so we won't work all the way through Nehemiah, and there's lots of genealogies and things happening in the text, and so um, if you'll give me permission, I won't work us all the way line by line through the genealogies. Um, unless you want me to, I will, okay? <laughs> so we're starting in Ezra 1 today. So Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your presence and your goodness and your mercy. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to minister and speak to our hearts. Lord, hide me behind the cross. and You be the chief minister in the house this morning. Father, I pray we leave this place better disciples of Jesus. I've prayed all week long, and I just want to pray here, Lord, that you would make us a people about our Father's business. We want to be about your business. I think of Jesus at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4, and after he's spoken with that woman, and when the disciples come back with food, and Jesus says, I've had food to eat you know not of. Lord, satisfy us in doing your will and serving you. Lord, we give you all of our lives. It's in the precious name of Jesus. Somebody say amen. Amen. I want to read to you Psalm 137, which is one of the uh, most emotionally heart-wrenching psalms. History says that Jeremiah penned this psalm. I mean, this would be um, directly after uh, the Babylonian captivity, after the Jews were taken from Jerusalem. Um, Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, upon the willows in the midst, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Verse 7 through 9 are a bit dramatic. We don't know what to do with them. But verse 7, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rocks. That last passage there, the psalmist is essentially asking God for vengeance against the Babylonians who have now totally ransacked Jerusalem and torn the temple to the ground. And so, again, Jeremiah, history says Jeremiah penned this psalm. And think of Jeremiah being called the weeping prophet. What was he weeping about? That, that Jerusalem was going to experience extreme judgment. Jerusalem was going to be ransacked. And you remember all of the other prophets of Jeremiah's day prophesied peace and blessing and prosperity. And Jeremiah kept saying, oh no, there's a day coming when God's going to tear this place to the ground, allow our enemies to tear this place to the ground. As we move to Ezra, we're going to move to um, the, the exiles now being released from Babylon to go and rebuild 
Jerusalem. And so today, I want to take a little bit of time and do context. You guys know me. We we need to make sure that we understand the historical context. And so if you give me a few minutes, I naturally want to read to you from Daniel chapter 5 as we start our Ezra series. Um, Because I want to try to paint the context for Ezra's life. Now, hear that Psalm 137 and the grief and the mourning. When, when, when the Jews are pulled from Jerusalem, that's obviously their homeland. There's cultural identity wrapped up in Jerusalem, and it's their worship. Their, the temple is central to their worship. And, and that was the temple that Solomon dedicated, and the glory of the Lord fell upon. That was the temple um, th- that was so meaningful and filled with the Spirit has now been totally destroyed. And so the grief that they're experiencing is nothing like we've ever known. It's to be totally ransacked. Um, and so, when we turn to Daniel chapter 5, of course, remember that Daniel is, is a part of the exiles in Babylon. Daniel's living in Babylon now, serving. Remember, he served first Nebuchadnezzar, who um, was the head of Babylon. When we move to Daniel chapter 5, I want to read to you about the day that, that Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians. And I'm going to tie all of this up, I promise you, and give us some context here. Daniel 5, 1 through 8. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded, listen to this, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So when Belshazzar takes over power, he has in the vessels of the temple, of of Solomon's temple, brought in, and they're getting drunk with, with items from God's temple. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, obviously. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me the interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the interpretation. Now, the the temple was ransacked around 586 BC. And again, Belshazzar has all of his party guests now getting drunk with the vessels from Jerusalem. Daniel is... Again, a Jewish exile serving in Jerusalem. He's been faithful to Yahweh in Babylon. Remember, like, the um, not eating the king's food, the Daniel fast, where he and his friends are faithful. Um, when Daniel interprets the dreams of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to see later in Daniel's life there being commissions where um, no one's allowed to pray except for an, to an idol. But Daniel's going to keep showing himself steadfast and faithful to Yahweh. And so when we find now Daniel stepping into this narrative, I like to think that Daniel's a little bit frustrated to watch Belshazzar getting drunk with the vessels from the house of the Lord. He's been faithful. He's shown himself a blessing to Babylon, but I'd like to think he's not so happy about this scenario. Daniel 5, just continuing, verse 25 to 31. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mean, Mean, Tekel, and Parson. 
Daniel says this is the interpretation of the matter. Daniel's now come in. The, the, the enchanters of Babylon can't interpret it, but Daniel can. Daniel comes in and says, this is the interpretation. Mean, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found warning. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And so what we have, again, is the night when Belshazzar decides that he's going to throw a party and get drunk with the vessels of the temple of Jerusalem, a hand appears, just a hand, and, and writes a message that needs to be interpreted. And Daniel comes in, and Daniel says, I didn't read you this part of the text, you can keep your silver and gold, I don't want anything to do with it, but I want you to know that what this means is, one, God has numbered your days, meaning you're about to be cut off. Two, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. I've, I've, God's judging you, and you're, you don't stand up to the test. Three, the Medes and the Persians are going to take your kingdom. And the very night that Daniel comes in and prophesies this to the king, he's murdered, and the kingdom of Babylon is now given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, we know, I actually know this to be historically true. It's one of the fun artifacts of history that we have. Is a document, a, a, a piece of pottery called the Cyrus Cylinder, and the Cyrus Cylinder is dated to about the same time period, about 538 B.C., and the Cyrus Cylinder tells us that the Medes and the Persians, that night that they, the Euphrates River ran through the city of Babylon, and what the Medes and the Persians did, they couldn't climb the walls, and so they dammed up the river upstream, and so as the river began to get lower and lower, they eventually just walked down the riverbed right under the gates where the river used to run through the city. They walked right in while Belshazzar was drunk, and they took over Babylon. Now, what we find here is that old David Wilkerson said that God will not allow his name to be profaned for too long in any time period. Right? That like Belshazzar spits in the face of Yahweh as he's getting drunk with these vessels, and that very night God says, oh no, the kingdom is taken from you and given to the Medes and the Persians. And we find that God is serious about worship, he's serious about holiness, and he's serious about the sacred. Now, from there, let's turn to Ezra chapter 1, and what we're going to find is that Ezra is now under the leadership of Cyrus. Um, Cyrus being the head of the Medes and the Persians. And so authority is taken from Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, and is given to Cyrus. And this first decree we're going to read in Ezra chapter 1, um, we're going to find Cyrus giving decrees concerning Jerusalem. You guys okay with me so far? I know we're reading a lot, but you guys are so smart. I know your readers are leaders. That's what I always say. Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord, I want you to hear this, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord stirred up his spirit so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and he put it in writing. This is what he said. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. What is this pagan king doing, saying the Lord charged him to build a house in Jerusalem? Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, 
and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever places he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, uh, the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, Everyone, listen to this line again, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. We find that God is into stirring up people's spirits. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So now we find Cyrus returning the vessels that Belshazzar was getting trashed with. First, let me talk to you for a moment about Ezra. Because again, we, we need to have a little bit of context and I, I want you to understand where we're going. Ezra is the greatest scribe of the Old Testament. Ezra is a priest. We know that from his lineage and he functions as a priest. But his primary role was copying scrolls of scripture to new scrolls of scripture. And so he was very much a man of the word, a man who gave his life to transcribing the law. Ezra is, is, is known, is accredited with writing Psalm 119. Um, remember Psalm 119, 105, you were given this in your childhood. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This Psalm 119 is a psalm about loving God's word and his precepts, and that's very much um, telling about the person of Ezra. So Ezra is a man of the word, and he's going to teach the word. He's, he's very much a, a teacher, someone who teaches God's law. History says that Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles, which were one book, again, and that Ezra wrote um, Ezra and Nehemiah, which were also one book. So Ezra is a man of details. He's a historian, um, and in that light, as we approach Ezra chapter 1, we need to know that Ezra is not actually going to really enter the story until Ezra chapter 7, because Ezra is recording, he's, he's, he's recording the history of what happened around his lifespan, but he's not going to lead the first wave of captives back to Jerusalem. That man who will lead is called Zerubbabel. So the first roughly six chapters, Zerubbabel is going to go and, and to start the rebuilding of the temple. And what's kind of interesting is that when we study the, the exiles, when the Jews were took, taken from Jerusalem, there were three waves of exiles being brought into Babylon. And now what we're, we're going to read in Ezra and through Nehemiah is that there are three waves in which Jews will go back to Jerusalem and under three different leaders. The first wave, which we're reading about today, will be under the leader Zerubbabel, and the second wave will be under Ezra, and the third wave will be under Nehemiah. Zerubbabel will deal with the temple. Ezra is largely going to deal with worship and the word, and, and he's going to deal with the Sabbath and the feast and honoring God's law, 
And you remember that Nehemiah is going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So historically, we have three waves of, re- of return led by three men. And so when we're reading Ezra chapter 1 today, Ezra's not even in the story yet. He's just telling us about, he's recording for us, the scribe, the historian, is recording for us this phase of Israel's history in which um, the temple now is going to be rebuilt. So Ezra 1 opens by telling us that Cyrus decreed that Israel could return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Now, that's really interesting because it's essentially a parrot of the conclusion of Second Chronicles. So Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22, this is how Chronicles finishes, says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout the whole kingdom and also put it into writing. And so again, we find the similarities between the record of Chronicles. Chronicles concludes with the same introductory line as the start of Ezra. Again, historically the same author. And the line is that in Cyrus's first year, the Lord stirred up his heart to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah. Now, what is the prophecy of Jeremiah? Yes, Jeremiah 23 is a beautiful text, but let's look at Jeremiah 25, verse 11 through 12, in which Jeremiah said this, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Okay, so the whole land, Jerusalem, shall become a ruin and a waste, and the nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So for 70 years. Then after the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. And that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. What did God just say? I'm going to judge Jerusalem. She'll be totally laid to waste for 70 years. But after that 70 years is up, I'm going to judge Babylon and lay Babylon to waste. And so Jeremiah, again, is called the the weeping prophet. He's crying out to Jerusalem, you're going to be destroyed. He was beaten and rejected for prophesying this. But remember the, the Jeremiah 29, 11 that we love to quote to each other. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. That was given to Jerusalem before going into captivity. And God was already saying, this is going to be 70 years of judgment. But I promise you that there's a day of deliverance coming when you'll return to the land where I'll prosper you. Now, where this text gets even more interesting is, I know you guys are fascinated already, is when we start to talk about Cyrus, again, this Medo-Persian king, when we start to talk about Cyrus as fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah, this is fascinating. Isaiah wrote 800 AD, so at least 150 years, if not way more, before the birth of Cyrus. Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 44, 28 through 45, 1. The Lord who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, and to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. So again, hundreds of years before Cyrus' birth, 
Isaiah pins his name. And Yahweh says that Cyrus will be his shepherd and fulfill his purposes. Yahweh says that Cyrus will say of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, as you, as you think about this, um, the only way that Cyrus can say to Jerusalem, your foundation shall be laid, is if the foundation has been torn down because the foundation's already laid. And so Isaiah is also prophesying that Jerusalem will be destroyed. But there will be a king who, who rises up named Cyrus who will commission the Jews to return to Israel and to rebuild the land. These are historical truths showing the accuracy of biblical prophecy, but it's also showing us this, that, that, that God is working throughout the narrative of history. That God has plans and intentions and a will, and He will accomplish all He set out to accomplish. So consider the despair of the Jews. Think of that psalm we opened with, Psalm 137. How could they sing when Jerusalem's torn down? They've lost their homeland. They're, they're, they've lost their, their house of worship where there were sacrifices. They're, they're in total despair, totally crushed for 70 years, and all of a sudden it just breaks. And all of a sudden, the, the time is just over. It's just done. And the prophets of judgment... Jeremiah, who they denied, told them that there'll be a day when it just breaks. Now, let me read to you from Daniel chapter 9. This, this shows us Daniel, at the end of his life, he's aged now, he's, he's in his 80s, and he's beginning to look to the prophet of Jeremiah, and he's beginning to pray, God, break this Babylonian captivity and return us to the land. And so this is from the, the latter years of Daniel's life, chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by the sin of Mede, who was king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that, according to the word of the Lord of Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the, the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. Jerusalem, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. And so here we find Daniel holding on to Jeremiah's prophecy, 70 years, fasting, praying that God would deliver, confessing the sin of Jerusalem, and petitioning God for the break, for the hour when Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Now, I, I want to say this just quickly. As a people, and most of us, with our theological upbringing, those of you um, there, there aren't many of us who have grown up, I don't think in our body, in a real strong Reformed camp. Or the, the, the Reformed churches, the Calvinists, um, would teach that, that God has ordained all things to come to pass from the foundation of the world, and that God is sovereignly working out all things, and that everything comes to pass through His will and His plans. Now, most of us from our upbringing, many of us have been raised in Arminian camps, where we emphasize the free will of man. And so in, in the Reformed camp, you emphasize the will of God causing history to come to pass, and we emphasize the free will of man to receive or reject or to deny. Um, 
And what I want to say to you is that although I am, I'm not suggesting that we, we turn to five-point Calvinism, I am suggesting that we recognize that, that even within the free will of man, we're playing checkers and he's playing chess. Do you see what I'm saying? Even within the free will of man, God's going to get done what God wants to get done. And, and there's no, there's, there is no um, fear, there is no anxiety about whether or not God is going to set all things right. There is no anxiety about whether or not Jesus will have a bride. There is no fear that if our nation rebels that somehow Jesus won't return or fulfill. Like, all of that is rubbish. God's going to accomplish what God intends to accomplish. He's playing chess, man. He's working above, higher. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. And so what we see here is the Babylonians thinking, we've got them. We've got Jerusalem. We've conquered their God. That's really what invasion was about. That's why they tear down the temple and bring back the vessels from the temple and put them in their pagan temples, right? It was to kind of show off, we conquered the God of Israel. They think that they've pinned Jerusalem down and Jerusalem is done for. When in reality, God is using their own pursuits to capture other cities, to discipline his people, knowing that when the discipline's done, he's going to judge Babylon. You see what I'm saying? God is playing chess. And he's really not so concerned with what people perceive or think in the moment. He's not so concerned with Babylon thinking she's got Jerusalem. Because for 70 years to God is a blink of an eye. And, and so when God is good and ready, when, when Belshazzar profanes God's name, God strips that kingdom from his hand. And all of a sudden the vessels are no longer in pagan temples, but they're on their way back to Jerusalem. And, by the way, God says, hundreds of years before Cyrus was, was born, I named him for you. And I told you who I would raise up. And then, um, remember again, that God stirred the heart of Cyrus. Right? And so, so God is actively working in the life of the man. to cause. And then we think of the proverb that the... God controls the heart of the king like, like streams and rivers. He turns them as he wills. So when Cyrus comes to power in his first year, he says, I am, God has stirred my heart to announce that the Jews should go back to Jerusalem and they should take the vessels from the house of God in Jerusalem and they should take them back. And this part is really interesting. And to all who God stirs their heart, the individuals in my kingdom who live around them should give them silver and gold and free will offerings to take back to the temple. Now we're thinking, I'm thinking of Exodus, right? Because when the Jews leave Egypt, they leave with their pockets full. You remember this? The Egyptians are giving them gold and silver and blessing them as they leave. And, and Cyrus is very much almost mimicking that for us now. The Jews who leave are leaving with their pockets full. And the people who were once their enemy and their oppressor are now their friend and their blesser. And, and God, again, can turn that on a dime. When, when the discipline of God is done for Israel, God just says, now it's time for favor. Now it's time for blessing. When God says, my name has been profaned long enough, now it's time for my house to be rebuilt. It just breaks. And these Jews, again, they're going to be led by Zerubbabel, are, are commissioned 
to rebuild the house of Yahweh, which again is strange that Cyrus would be concerned with that, to rebuild the house of Yahweh, and they're sent with finances and blessings. And we see again that even the vessels that were taken, the same vessels that Belshazzar were using to profane the name of the Lord, are now returned to the rightful owners, and the Jews are taking them back to Jerusalem, back to the house of God. When a culture turns in wickedness and God judges, when the house of God seems to be in despair, remember that our God is after a worshiping people. And he's disciplining Israel because Israel, they they were not worshiping Yahweh with all their hearts. They were backslidden in their religion and in their faith. So he's disciplining Israel by tearing down Jerusalem. Remember, that was the word from the start. God always calls Israel his land, which is really interesting. Um, it's, it's his land, and there's a covenant between him and Israel. And Israel needed to honor the law and honor God. And as long as they honored the law and God, God would bless them and cause them to prosper. But if they turned, if they dishonored God and worshipped Baals and went after Molech, if they worshipped false gods, then God said, I will bring you out of that place and into the hands of your enemies, and I will destroy. And so what we found is the fulfillment of that word. God says, your worship is slack. Your worship is not pure before me. There are idols in your midst. So God brings judgment and discipline. But when the discipline is done, and when the Babylonians begin to mock and spit in the face of Yahweh, God, in a moment, brings the Medes and Persians to break through. And then on top of that, God raises up Cyrus, stirs up Cyrus's heart to command the Jews to go and rebuild the temple. And so what we see is, again, God has plans, he has intentions, he has purposes, he has a chess game going on, and we're way down here thinking we're competing, and we're not. Um, and so God has, has plans. His plan involves having a worshiping people. So that when Israel goes after other gods, he says, no, no, this is not what I intended. Here comes discipline and judgment. And after the discipline and judgment, he's back to, I intend to have a pure people of worship. Go back. Here's silver and gold. Here's the vessels. I'll raise up Cyrus. I'll stir up his heart. I'll stir up men in the community's heart to leave and to build. I'll handle all of the details because I am after a people of sincere worship, holy worship. God intended, and this is what was so devastating for the Jews, God always intended for worship to be the center of the community life. And so when the temple was destroyed, that's a big deal for the Jews because worship is the center of who they are. Okay, and, and, and I think these concepts translate right into the church very simply. We can, um, and Jerusalem was prospering financially. Jerusalem was Um, prospering culturally. There was music and art coming out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem um, was a pretty good place to live, prospering politically. We can have all of those things as a church. We can be blessed financially. We can prosper in our arts and in our gifts, and we can feel successful. But if sincere worship is not the heart of our community, we can be sure that God is not pleased. Because what God is after is holy, hot worship. 
And so very much so, the entire text of um, from Zerubbabel to Ezra to Nehemiah, the entire thing is about, the theme is restored worship. Pure hearts, dedicated to Yahweh alone. Every idol comes crashing down. A people who will say, Yahweh is my God and no one else. Set their faces like flint to love the Lord. And so, as we look at Zerubbabel's leadership, we're going to look next week as he goes and uh, starts talking about rebuilding the altar and the temple. When we look to Ezra, he's going to teach the law and what holiness is and how the people should honor God. When we look to Nehemiah, he's going he's gonna to deal with security and, and the people of Israel having a secure place to live. But the, the, the overarching theme, I don't know if we'll get into all of this, but when we look at the, the latter years of Nehemiah, do you guys remember this? Have you read Nehemiah recently? You find Nehemiah like pulling out his hair and frustrated and fighting with people, like beating people up. Because Nehemiah is essentially saying, we went through all that and you're still backslidden. And so we find that the end of Ezra's life, we're going to find the same thing. He's frustrated. He's angry. He's going to say to God, remember that I called those sinners out and that I stood fast because what they were trying to accomplish was for the community of Israel to get serious about worshiping God. Um, and we'll see in the end of their lives them being very frustrated when Israel continues to turn to idols. We'll stop there for today. Um, but in conclusion, we want to remember that, that history is in the hands of Yahweh, the sovereign God of the universe. We're, we are not to be defeated. We're not to be so wrapped up in... Um, what seems to be happening in the political landscape. Don't, don't hear me say that we shouldn't be involved in politics because you guys know, you know my heart. I think things like abortion have got to stop. And so there need to be Christians in that realm advocating and lobbying for that to stop. So I'm not saying that we should never be involved in politics. I'm just saying that, that the political landscape, it, we never give it more authority or give it more place than the sovereignty of Yahweh. We understand that God can raise up um, and God can stir up whoever's heart he wants to stir up. Even our current legislation, our current White House if he wanted to. Um, and so it's, it's in his hands. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? It's in his hands. We want to pray. We want to fast. We want to repent. We wanna, but we never want to allow any other political party or, or power or agenda to have more weight in our hearts than the sovereignty of God. And, and we want to remember that while... Oh, shoot, did I even mean to go here? While um, when we're thinking about when we're thinking about the political landscape, we're thinking about the way that our culture is shifting, or even our, um, our 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 politics as it relates to international settings. While political camps may be concerned with policy and finance, and and I actually, I actually think that they should be concerned with those things, I, right? Like that's what they're there for. Um, God, God is most concerned with his people really worshiping. And so we, we also must most, our, our biggest concern, our, our highest priority, the first and the last of what we are about must be about Jesus Christ being glorified in our region. And when the church lays down her life just to love him and just to bless him, and when we as the church 
purge our hearts of idolatry, right? Purge our hearts of, of idolizing wealth or worshiping our egos, our pride, or, or worshiping our own agendas or how, how, how high we can climb the, the ladder in our workplaces. When we get serious about this thing beating in my chest, it only exists to worship Jesus. And I will sacrifice every idol. Every idol must fall. We were praying last night, and I was thinking about um, in, in Samuel's day, when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen from Israel, and it was brought to the Philistines, and they placed it in the Temple of Dagon. And do you remember what happened when they placed it in the Temple of Dagon? The, the, the statue just falls down. And, and I was praying, God, bring the presence of your of, bring, bring the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of the Lord in such a heavy way in our church that idols just crumble and they just fall. And, and we believe that as we place Jesus Christ as the Supreme Lord in our hearts and we get serious about pure worship, He's, he's going to bless us. He's going to put His favor on us. He's going to use us. Um, we, we don't have to live so concerned with our, our economic well-being. We want to be diligent, but we ultimately believe that He's the Lord of our lives. And what I must be concerned with is going when he tells me to go, is lifting my hands to worship and my voice to worship when he calls me to worship. I, I need to be a giver. I need to be willing to speak and evangelize. The chief priority of my life is to worship him, not just with my lips, but with all of me. But all of my life calls incense to rise to the heavens. You guys understand what I'm saying? That's very much what we're talking about in this text is let's get back to real, hot, laid-down worship, sincere worship. All right, stand to your feet. We'll get ready to close. Seth, come for me. Miss Jackie, do you mind if I share what you shared this morning? Miss Miss Jackie felt in her heart this morning that um, the Lord was just speaking a single word to her focus. She said she just kept hearing the word focus, focus. And when she shared that, my heart jumped and I'm thinking, oh, that, that's exactly what we're trying to talk about today. Is that God is looking for a people who are not distracted with the things of this world, but who are focused on living solely for Him, worshiping. Seth had... I didn't ask Seth if I could share this either. But Seth had uh, a dream this week, and I'll let him sometimes share all the details and what he felt. But one of the things he said to me was, I feel like the Lord's saying we need to number our days. Meaning, do you understand what that concept means in the scriptures? That you're aware of the brevity of your life, and you make it count. You use every day, every hour to bless him, and to live focused, totally worshiping. And so... As we open the altars today, I'm going to have the altar ministers to just kind of be hanging. Um, they may come by and pray for you if you want prayer. I want, to, I want to open up the altar, and I want to ask anyone who felt this morning, God's, I think God might be stirring my heart to get back to worship. Maybe It may be as simple as you used to start your mornings with worship on in the car, but you found yourself listening to whatever else you want to listen to. You used to start your mornings by reading a psalm and blessing him, but now you've started your mornings with social media. It, it may be that simple. But if you feel God calling you and stirring your heart back to prioritizing,
pure and holy worship. I want to ask you to come to the altar today. The altar team is going to sing. And I want, to, I want you to pray and say to the Lord, my heart is yours. That's all I want you to pray. My heart is yours. All I am is yours. Give me focus. So the altars are open. I want you to come. Thank you.